everyone and welcome back to Feminist Futures. Hope you've all been doing well and enjoying the, the warm weather. Um, I'm back with an intro this week uh, as I finally got my voice back from a cold and this episode's a really good one so I'm really excited to share it with you. This week we're diving into the world of feminist foreign policy with Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy co-founder Marissa Conway. The Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy was set up in 2016 post kind of Brexit vote and in the wake of Trump's election and it's grown immensely over the past five years to become a really important and critical voice in this space and at a time when we're sort of reimagining what feminism is and how it can be applied um, to big topics like like foreign policy. I was really fortunate to be involved right at the start of the project and did some a little bit of editing in them and it's just been such a joy to watch the network grow and to expand across multiple countries and Marissa is a fountain of knowledge and analysis in this area. One of the things that stuck with me from the episode is that Marissa talks about feminism as this sort of framework or tool that for analysing power dynamics and it really stuck with me because I've kind of always thought about feminism in that way but never really called it that and it really is a really helpful way to think about how you can apply it to everyday things. So for example what kind of food you're buying or who you're kind of donating to or organisations you're supporting right the way through to, you know, kind of nuclear policy changes or immigration chat. And it helps to give us a framework for to understand who has power, who hasn't, and how can we change that. I would really encourage anyone who's enjoyed the episode and enjoyed listening to Marissa to check out the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy website. We'll link to it on our Instagram and Twitter posts and to go to some of the events they have. They're always really interesting, intriguing and come away making you think more about, about these topics. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of the others, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcast. It really helps and I love reading what people have thought about episodes and where we can improve or, you know, ideas for topics. I'm always willing to to listen to them. So please enjoy the show. Thanks. No, totally, totally. Well, yeah, well, thanks so much for joining me amidst all your, your kind of moving house um, stuff and everything that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, since I started the podcast, I wanted to do one on, on foreign policy and to talk about the kind of work that you've been doing and obviously a huge, huge fan of, of your work and having kind of dipped my toe into it a little bit in, in 2016 and, and then obviously followed all your work that you've done since then. Um, I feel like the Center for Feminist Policy has just taken off and the work that you've done has come at a time when people were already thinking about these things and then COVID set and it's kind of given it another lens or another kind of layer to, to what's happening. I wondered if you could kind of go back to that point in, in 2016 and talk about, you know, what made you want to start the project and start the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy and like, why do you, why do you think it's important? Oh, wow. I think I've tried to block 2016 out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Trump getting elected but honestly those things were actually very I think important catalysts to Mm -hmm. conceptualizing what CFFP was back in the early days it's I would say it's changed dramatically from then um, Mm. as to what it is now but I completely thought I was forming this organization as an you know I'm, I'm American living in the UK but still feel quite connected to 
everything happening back in the States. And I completely thought I would be building this organization with the first woman president in the U.S. And of course, yeah. I think it, it goes to show the kind of bubbles you can fall into on social media because I just truly did not realize how much support Trump had. But I was convinced Hillary Clinton was going to be the first woman president. And mm-hmm. yeah, there are a lot of her policies that need a lot of work. But just that idea was um, quite exciting, very captivating. And, and it was so it was so tough to, to watch Trump get elected. And it really mm-hmm. just kind of, um, I don't know, fueled this, this rage, <laughs> I guess, yeah. um, that I wanted to do something to just try and take a stance against this ridiculous, ridiculous, sexist, racist rhetoric that was coming out of politics and infilt- well, not infiltrating foreign policy, but really created and sustained by foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I exactly. thought having this feminist lens was a very interesting thing. What happens when you put feminism, which in some ways could be seen as the complete opposite of foreign policy. Feminism is about power sharing. Foreign policy is about power hierarchies mm-hmm, and definitely. fighting to stay at the top of that. So this just, this captivated me. Like, what could this potentially look like? I know at the time Sweden had announced they had a feminist foreign policy, but in 2016, like, no one knew what that was. I don't think Sweden had even really done much at that point because it had only been a year or two. Mm-hmm. So I was just so, yeah, enchanted by this this new concept. What could we do with it? And importantly, what it would mean for civil society to have a voice in yep. the development of this concept and not just leave it to governments. Completely. And I think you're totally right. You were saying that, you know, even though, 2016 was a very crap year and I'm sure many of us also don't want to want to kind of strike it off it was kind of a bit of a shifting point for people particularly people as you said who were in um, echo chambers of their own or even people working in civil society who thought we were you know progress is this linear situation and we're always going to be going in one in one direction and it obviously wasn't do you feel like Trump and kind of Brexit and all the other things that were going on there were actually kind of it helped in some ways it helped for that kind of fertile ground for feminist foreign policy to take off that's a great question I think like the answer to that would be very context specific um because I can think of instances where Trump's election and and Brexit and Um, a lot of the struggles since have been quite catastrophic to people's lives. And I can also think of instances where it has fueled a lot of really passionate people to try and make a change. So I think I I try to to keep my eye on the silver lining and and, um, attempt to stay optimistic, although that doesn't always work out. But Cynthia Enloe, Oh, I love her. I can what talk babe about her she forever. is. <laughs> I interviewed her a couple of years ago for CFFP for her interview series. And one of the things that she said in the interview, I'm paraphrasing her exact quote will be in the interview, but it was something to be kind of like the patriarchy wants you to feel alone. The patriarchy wants you to feel depressed because that's going to slow you down. So mm-hmm. it's you know, figuring out what are my boundaries what can I do what can I contribute where I don't push myself to burn out but I still feel inspired and I can still feel like I'm putting one foot in front of the other towards something that I believe in um and so 
that's really guided me. And, and I've seen that kind of similar mentality guide a lot of people. But I think we've also been able to open up and just be a lot more honest about, you know, what it means to kind of try and do that work under a capitalist system where yeah. the idea of going slow and not pushing yourself to burnout is kind of the opposite of what we have been raised to do and what it means to be productive. Bit of a roundabout answer to your question there. <laughs> but no, I do. In general, I've been reflecting a lot on recently. No, it's so true. I mean, I feel, to be honest, I feel the same. I feel... um during lockdown I think a lot of people also had this as well like when you were kind of stripped back to the like just doing your job at home and like not with the all kind of distractions that come with it a lot of people were reevaluating their relationship with work and you know we know that that means kind of reevaluating relationship with capitalism and kind of neoliberalism and all those kind of big words and that's something I wanted to to kind of pick up pick up on and we can kind of talk about it in terms of the future kind of looking to the future of feminist foreign policy but at the moment as it stands you know we have different countries you were saying Sweden and I know that other countries like Canada and a few others have have committed to having a feminist foreign policy but it is still kind of in this global set of the world that is dominated by kind of neoliberal politics and stuff how do you find like that tension and kind of working with countries when often you're asked with a feminist foreign policy from what I understand you're asking them to sort of rewrite a lot of their policies and really go back to basics how does that work kind of when you're when you're trying to kind of convince them to take it up take it up and, and start it I think for policymakers and states that are interested in feminist foreign policy or have committed to it or expressed interest in some way. Um, there's definitely a certain eagerness to learn about what this means and how they could 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 produce this in, in their own context. I think there are like kind of two sides to this where I think there we need to caution against the co-optation of feminism mm -hmm. in a state context and recognize that state implementation of feminist action, feminist ideas, it's always going to be a little bit watered down. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's something I'm struggling with a bit right now is just the extent to which that is watered down. Mm -hmm. um, but what gives me the hope is actually seeing the feminists themselves as individuals in governments trying to push through these changes. And it's quite a difficult thing to do. I honestly, I'm not sure. I could do that myself. No, because I think ex civil servant here who left. I was like, uh, yeah, okay, couldn't do so. it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's that's um, a whole I'm, other topic of conversation. To that, but yeah, it seems like it would be so tough, so so tough to try and push through change from the inside. I'm a huge proponent for that. I think it's really important, but yeah, not for me. Um, yeah. So, so I am, you know in so much admiration for people who are in these governments trying to do this work and adhere to these authentic feminist values. I think we're still too early in the lifespan of feminist foreign policy to really understand what this actually means. We're starting to see patterns, and I think you've kind of touched on this well, this sort of fallback on neoliberal feminism or feminism through a neoliberal lens. Mm -hmm. And I'm also very cautious that the majority of countries that have engaged with feminist foreign policy in some way do tend to be global north countries, donor mm -hmm. countries, um, yeah. 
that kind of, it, to me, it's, it's reflecting these imperial patterns that I'm not a fan of. And mm-hmm. I do worry that if it continues down this path, we're going to see feminism used as sort of a new version of colonization in yep. the sense that it's these um, global North countries going into global South. I know this is in and of itself kind of problematic terminology. I want to recognize that, but yeah. um, just for the sake of a succinct explanation, global North countries going into global South spaces saying, here you go do these things and we will help you live better lives, which is completely opposite to what feminism is trying to do. Um, And the concept of speaking on behalf of other people or knowing what's better for other people is inherently against what feminism asks about working in collaboration with others. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I am skeptical. Mm -hmm of this and I do I am increasingly becoming more worried about seeing this pattern emerge within feminist foreign policy and one of the ways to mitigate this is always going to be about bringing it back to civil society Mm -hmm. and understanding that feminism originated as a struggle against power structures that are sustained by the state Mm -hmm. and the state's usage of feminism then needs to be inherently grounded in feminist activism and they always need to be going back to the feminist activists to understand what feminists need what we would suggest what our recommendations are and then put their money where their mouth is and fund those things and invest in those things yeah and I think that's that's what's so right is that often states come in and they say like we know what we're going to do and we have all these like feminist projects but actually they're people who've been working on the ground and it's the same if you take the analogy of as you said kind of um, development organizations and humanitarian organizations who go across and kind of work in different contexts anyone who's embedded in that community will always know better and will always know what what someone needs so it's kind of taken on on that analogy it was funny when I was trying to think about what a feminist foreign policy looks like for an individual person all I could think about like is is policies that aren't feminist foreign policy so the main one that comes to mind is like the global gag rule you know which lots of people will know as the kind of this like sort of what would you even call it a rule that gets brought out every time there's a democratic or republican depending on who it is (laughs) they put it in and they take it out and it kind of restricts funding for abortion Um, and that has you know the ramifications of that over the last of the trump administration and even now because the biden administration is still kind of um kind of dragging their feet on it is is really is really profound on on individual people and their access to contraceptives and stuff i wonder if you could give an example on a flip of something that you've seen work that's like a feminist foreign policy initiative that really has a good kind of positive impact on on people's lives this is an interesting question so in terms of implementation and impact there isn't a lot of information out there about how states are shifting their behavior, shifting their spending, and what that actually tangibly is resulting in. Sweden published a handbook, I think in 2018, Mm -hmm. somewhere around then. And last summer we did a project looking at how Canada, France, Mexico, Mm -hmm. and Sweden uh, changed their spending, um, their their foreign aid spending in alignment with feminist foreign policy in response to COVID. So as far as I'm aware, these are the only two resources that actually speak to Mm -hmm. 
what things are happening on the ground and particularly how funding is shifting. Um, and there are, of course, guidelines uh, or guidances like Sweden has their three R's, their rights, resources mm -hmm. and representation. But these are the things that they are investing resources and finances in. But beyond this, that impact side of it, we don't have a super clear picture of what specifically yeah. is happening. Um, but I can say in terms of like our own work, I have been utilizing this kind of series of questions that I think really gets to the heart of what it means to use a feminist lens as a analytical tool in any given situation. And that's asking very simply, who has power? Who doesn't have power? Why is this the case? And does this need to change? And then if, if yes, if this needs to change, how? So it's kind of just really quickly trying to get a snapshot of what the power dynamics are, how some people may be sitting in positions of power and others are not, and this may be causing some sort of inequality or tension or violence that needs to be addressed. Um, so that I think is a very easy, very succinct way to bring a feminist lens onto any situation. And then that makes it very easy for anyone to kind of cast an eye over a particular policy or a particular situation and start to bring in this concept of a feminist foreign policy ourselves. And I think that's also very important that we don't wait for the states to self-publish exactly. what they're doing with their feminist foreign policy because of course they're always going to publish the things that sound wonderful and sound like it's very successful totally. but I think in this kind of work yeah. as wonderful as it is to have states using a feminist approach we also have to be quite critical and not afraid to call them out when we think they may be falling short in certain areas um, but really have the power of civil society to push governments and hold them to this this really rigorous feminist standard. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to see a little more impact come out from states in the future. And it's also such early days still. I always remind myself of this. We're at the very, very beginning of what feminist, feminist foreign policy will evolve to be. Um, so I'm, I'm also just quite interested to see like what that journey is and how this changes over time and how this concept just shifts and adapts and evolves yeah 100 percent. I think you're right I think sometimes we I guess you know some of the examples that we have are just so stark you know whether it's the like the you know the global gag rule or if it's states not acting on climate crisis and things like that I think they're quite easy to put into tangible measurements but I think when you're trying to make that kind of deep-seated change and really change systems change it takes a long time to see that impact and that impact is often it's not easy to measure and so that's something that I, I kind of I find interesting about you know that kind of donor and funding sort of space this is a slight tangent but is that kind of pressure to always like monitor and evaluate like what someone is doing and that kind of thing whereas sometimes the act of having something or doing it is good enough if that makes sense I don't know if that that kind of if that makes sense but I think sometimes we're too busy on the kind of outcomes and, and pushing them for that. Whereas the act of just having, you know, a feminist foreign policy or pushing for that is already changing itself, maybe. Um, or like the language that we use is also like just as kind of an important step. I want to move on and talk about kind of like the vision of the future. And this is the part where I always try to get people to say like, no barriers, no like 
restraints, no parameters around it, but like for yourself, like what would the perfect illustration of a feminist foreign policy look like for you? This is so tough because I think it's very difficult to visualize something outside of existing structures and outside of existing (laughs) systems. And the more I understand how capitalism just filters absolutely everything we do, Mm -hmm. the more I understand how difficult it is to envision something beyond it. But when I kind of attempt to, to dream of this, this more feminist world, um, I mean, one of the things that always comes up for me is just a borderless world. And I think we're not remotely close to seeing that happen. But Mm -hmm. I think a true feminist approach to immigration would be no borders Mm -hmm. um, and allow just free movement of people. That is a massive thing that sticks out in my mind and it goes against, you know, many, many of the ideas that shape foreign policy today yeah. and that shape our societies today. I guess when you think about it, it's the one kind of thing that all states have in common, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's probably other things, but if you get bell down to it and, and this idea that we have to have these rigid measures and that, you, you know, it's essentially luck based on where you are in terms of like what what your status is and what your, your your life quality is or how you're able to just like live and thrive. Do you feel like there are any initiatives or, or kind of approaches that are even working towards that or have you seen any kind of stuff that made you think oh that would be a gateway to moving towards this kind of like borderless world? Not so much in response to a borderless world but somewhat in that direction of allowing people the freedom from poverty and freedom to live their life as they would like. I've been reading up a lot more on the concept of a universal basic income Mm. And I'm just convinced that if we're serious about ending poverty, this is the best way to go, 100%. That everybody receives a stipend from the state to support them. And again, I'm not convinced how realistic that is because it goes against the very fundamental capitalist idea of how we operate our current economy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just, you know, hear so much talk from governments about ending poverty and and helping people get out of poverty yeah and I think the answer is very simple universal basic income if you're that serious about it you commit to universal basic income and it takes away that security doesn't it that kind of blanket that people need in terms of money it was funny because one of the first episodes I did was on was on UBI and it's a friend of mine who runs a kind of campaign there and one of the things that he said that struck with me was that UBI gives you freedom to like do lots of things it gives you that freedom and when he was talking about it in the case of often it's women who are kind of trapped in um, abusive relationships and also what comes with that is is, um, financial abuse and so he was saying it's freedom to be able to leave that or freedom to try something else out do be an entrepreneur do all those different things it gives that but as you were saying the kind of capitalist sort of new liberal model is like you have to be rigid and stuck in your you know job to and you have to earn your way to those things and I think it's about also mindset shifting as as much as it is about kind of policy shift I wanted to also just quickly touch upon because obviously we have um I mean we have the climate crisis (laughs) it's obviously a thing didn't know (laughs) didn't really know how to introduce that there I was thinking about something but (laughs) we have the climate crisis (laughs) Uh, obviously it's like 
the biggest thing that is it's the biggest thing that's going to affect us right but I do think that like on a kind of individual level and it's quite interesting because the, the work that I'm doing at the moment with um the, with one of the organizations that I'm working with um we're doing this global survey and one of the questions is like what are the top issues that are affecting you and it's a global survey and one of the things that's really struck me is that the climate crisis is coming out in Europe as one of the top issues, right? Which I think we should all expect. But in Africa, for example, like just on, if you kind of take a snapshot, it's it's like eighth out of a top and the top ones are like gender-based violence, um, economic, you know, economic rights, uh, bodily autonomy and things like that. I wondered how with the climate crisis kind of looming and obviously like feminist foreign policy being a good way to kind of actually tackle the climate crisis how has it been kind of putting those two subjects together because I think sometimes people don't make that link as easily even people who work in those spaces how, how have you found that I think one of the things that feminism as a tool I like to think of it as a tool um, does really well is illustrate how interconnected everything is yeah so in the instance of the climate crisis, I think looking at how this is connected to everything else going on at the same time is um, a very feminist take on the situation. So <laughs> looking at the way gender-based violence is connected to the climate crisis and how these things influence one another. Um, we have a briefing on our site that I want to say we did about a year ago which touches on gender justice in relation to the climate crisis, which I definitely recommend and um, kind of goes into a little more detail about some of the issues that arise around this. But I think understanding that we operate in a system where, you know, you tinker with a policy over here and it ends up influencing and having this other con consequence that was unexpected over here, mm -hmm. the ripple effect is massive. And so with a feminist foreign policy, it's all about being mindful of how policy impacts the people on the ground. And mm -hmm. in the case of the climate crisis, very vulnerable people are suffering and are going to continue to suffer due to displacement and these sorts of things. So I think it kind of narrows its focus to understanding how are those that are being made vulnerable by the climate crisis or at risk of being made vulnerable Mm -hmm. um, or due to power dynamics around climate policy are struggling in some way, we need to be paying attention to them. We need to be mm -hmm. meeting their basic needs, making sure that we're listening to what they want because they're the ones actually experiencing the consequences of what's happening. That's, yeah, I think that in general is a good... Um, I don't know, a, a good framing for how yeah. feminist foreign policy, in my opinion, should be utilized as a way to kind of boil it down to the essence of like, who actually needs the support? Mm -hmm. And that's where our attention needs to be going. Definitely. Yeah. And I really like this idea of feminism as a tool. That's kind of how I've always thought of it as well. And it's really interesting when, when people are like, when I talk to people and they don't see it as that, I'm like, it's just a way of analyzing the world. And as you said, like saying, okay, how can we change this? Or how can we, how can we make it better? 
Um, and that brings us on the quite nicely to sort of the last section where I wanted to talk about sort of how we get there. And I guess like, you know, if you woke up uh, woke up tomorrow and you were sort of head of Westminster, Boris Johnson's been kicked out and you were and you were prime minister, what, what, what would be your kind of first move? Is there anything you, you think could be a really good shift to, to kind of laying that foundation for a feminist foreign policy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a dream. <laughs> What a dream. Not so much the being prime minister myself, but uh Yeah. <laughs> seeing Boris Johnson Definitely. find a new <laughs> job. What a what a wonderful uh thing for him. Yeah. Um <laughs> anyways. Um I think it would just have to come down to the history of colonization in the UK and mm-hmm. how that shapes everything about UK foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And the way domestic policy um, is developed and enacted in inside the UK as well, I think the connection between these two is very, very strong as it is anywhere. Mm-hmm. And understanding how inherently linked they are is, is very important. But the UK has a really atrocious colonial history. And mm-hmm. I think it's done a decent job of having a bit of amnesia around this and segmenting colonization into something that happened in the past but something that doesn't really need attention today when Mm -hmm. the reality is this is an ongoing legacy that influences things today and will continue to influence things in the future for the worse for some people where there is real violence people are experiencing on a daily basis mm-hmm. because of these colonial histories yeah. and I think the way that that just shapes British society in general is so pervasive and something that I have seen people really really want to ignore yeah. <laughs> like no 100% really yeah. just push aside so mm-hmm. I know that's quite a an abstract approach to this this question but I think understanding the history of the UK with this specific colonialism in mind and then moving forward to enact what I would consider to be more feminist policies is kind of the process through which I think um, not only that I would do myself but I think what any feminist politician or any feminist in government, or anyone interested in a feminist foreign policy, that's the, um, uh, it just has to happen. You cannot, cannot, cannot look at feminist policies in the UK without acknowledging the colonial legacy of the UK. Completely. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think like, even though it is quite abstract to say, okay, well, we need to tackle the history of colonialism and also like a huge one. But one of the things, you know, that always strikes me is like just teaching history in school. Like, I don't think I was ever taught you know anything about I mean I'm from Scotland but even Scotland's involvement in the in the slave trade and I do think that like often Scotland tries to sort of distance itself and we try to be like oh it was an English thing when it's like we had you know a huge we had huge ties with like slave trades in Guyana and things like that and all that kind of stuff but I think one of those things is just is just kind of like basic sort of education and making sure it's on the curriculum you know ensuring that there are black voices particularly and considering that you know we the, the UK, especially post-war, was rebuilt with, with Black people who came from 
lots of different countries to come and make this country better and then you know however many years ago where we're told to leave on the you know with the Windrush scandal the connect people are still unsure about making that connection right it's like the, it, it's all interconnected it's because we've never mm-hmm. kind of tackled and understood the oppression that we caused and and the kind of reparations that we should pay both financially and also kind of um on a kind of emotional emotional side of things you know earlier we talked about kind of the importance of civil society and I think like you're right that they do drive a lot of like feminist foreign policy particularly in the kind of development humanitarian space and then and and the more traditionally what you would class as like looking at more foreign policy stuff but I wonder like what you think of how people who maybe don't see themselves in that space can enact a feminist foreign policy and how they can kind of um, use it in their everyday work. Absolutely. I think one of the important things about feminism, I feel like I've said that phrase so many times during the conversation. There are lots of important things about feminism. As much as we are advocating for people to externally uphold these feminist values, it also requires the other side of the coin, which is ourselves upholding these feminist values. So I think using feminist ideas and conversations as a space for Mm self-reflection and as a space where we can unlearn these kind of very patriarchal, very capitalist ways of being that we've all just grown up in. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's very, what is that phrase? It's like, it's difficult to see the trees through the forest or the forest yeah something one of those the forest Um, for the trees i think it is or maybe it's probably goodness (laughs) Um, one of those but that's the point right is it's when you're in it it's really really difficult to understand what's happening unless you have other in my case other amazing people who can kind of you know point you in the direction of interesting books or have conversations with you to um, in my case, just helped me become very aware of these systems and structures. And it's it's a lifelong process. But yep. I think I know that I've spoken to people in the past who have said, like, I don't consider myself a feminist because I'm I'm not, you know, at these protests. I'm not posting on Instagram about this. I'm not displaying this external um, performative kind of feminism basically Mm -hmm. and and my response is always that you know that's a part of it but that's not all of it that's one aspect of what it means to be a feminist and a very very important part of what it means to be a feminist is also taking the responsibility to unlearn these things yourself to learn how to be a better anti-racist and acknowledge that this is a lifelong journey that we all will make mistakes And that we need to focus on understanding how in our own lives as individuals, we have, we, we too, you know, there are ripple effects to our actions. So if we are very mindful of that ripple effect, if we continue to work on better educating ourselves on being better allies for marginalized communities that we're not necessarily a part of and understand that that also doesn't involve leaning on them to teach us about their marginalization. Um, I think this is a huge, huge important part of feminism that I see sometimes not always necessarily understood. Um, So I would say to me, that's like 
the absolute best thing any of us could do. We don't have to go into the streets and protest every day. We need mm-hmm. to pick up books and we need to educate ourselves and just continue this process of learning and unlearning. I do think often even people who work in the charity sector, like for example, you know, you expect them to kind of have these like values and principles and kind of and work towards them. But like, you know, just a, just an example, the last organization I work at worked at found out they weren't paying their interns like a London living wage. Now, this was an organization that had a lot of money and didn't need to, you know, wasn't kind of pinching pockets like a lot of charities are. And when I was when I approached the conversation with with sort of management there, they were like, well, you know, that's just how it is. And I was like, well, we can we can change that we have the we have the money and the resources and the ability to change that and then eventually sort of it got changed but I did take a lot of being like uh, you know people saying oh but you know we have to start interns at this wage and then we have to you know then put up and I'm like how are you ever expecting to get diverse people in who maybe aren't from a wealthy background who can afford to do you know an internship and have financial support if you want that diversity and you want to change those things you have to start with the kind of tough and often it's the financial ones, you know, it's the work, it's it's the kind of work policies and people, I think, forget that, that, that just as much as you not buying a product because you don't want to have palm oil, for example, like if you're not paying your interns, then you're doing the same thing, you know, it's the same kind of process. And I think I personally think and it's a bit of a tangent, but I do think that work is our last kind of hurdle, like our kind of as feminists, like I do think the kind of neoliberal model of like constantly having to be checking your work and not having that ethics of care and you were talking about burnout and things like that. I do think that's one of the last hurdles that we haven't quite come come across and kind of started to be like, okay, how do we reframe how our relationship with work? And I think it's because people are scared of losing their jobs or being seen as lazy or unmotivated. Yeah, I wanted to, I'm, I'm aware of time, so I want to just kind of quickly and give give us time to talk about kind of center for feminist foreign policy and the work that you've got coming up is there anything that people can get involved with I know you've got some you had some virtual events and I don't know if you've got any in person coming up I know some people are starting to do them Um, but yeah please tell us what what you're up to (laughs) um I've just had a conversation today with my project manager thinking about like all right when can we start doing in-person events again um in the UK I should say like UK events are my my purview and then my two co-founders Christina and Nina head up our Germany operations so we kind of obviously separate countries separate rules leave it to each other to figure out when things should and should not resume I mean TBD keep an eye on our socials we'll obviously (laughs) go mad on like Instagram and Twitter when we can have our first in-person meetup I think honestly the best way to support our work is to become a member, which you can do on our website. And it's just a small donation every month um, to kind of help sustain our work. And it really, truly, truly, our members are the very core of how we are able to do what we do. Um, So that is single-handedly the best way you could, anyone could um, show CFFP a little love. But I know obviously finances are tough for everybody right now, not just nonprofit organizations. So if that's not a possibility, um, just simple things like, you know, sharing our social media when we share cool reports that we do or new briefings, just help kind of spread the word about our work and about feminist foreign policy, sign up for our newsletter. Um, you can get a rundown of everything that's going on, everything that's coming up. And yeah, I think 
I would say the third thing is probably just continuing all of us continuing on our feminist journeys to educate ourselves, continuing to read, continuing to have these conversations and continuing, I think, especially like you touched on this, I think it's so spot on, but figuring out what now comes after COVID, because Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a single person that I've spoken to that wants to go back to the way things were before. And I also know that you know, there's so many articles coming out about toxic relationships with work and how easy it is to overwork when we're just at home all day and there's nothing else going on. Totally. Yeah. You know, you just kind of five o'clock turns into six o'clock turns into seven o'clock. And I think as we are seeing shifts, I am very interested in making sure that they are healthy shifts Mm -hmm. and that we're not just falling into some new form of like hyper productivity capitalism that's basically the same thing just looks different somehow yeah um so but i'm i'm really just upset with capitalism these days yeah I like because i always just go are back we all not no. <laughs> and it's so it, difficult but... not to be sucked into it i think that no but i think that's a really good point i think this idea of that like on an individual you can make changes for yourself for others around you and then those ripple effects and that's how that's how policy works you know that's how changes work that's how impact happens and it doesn't have to be this although those big changes like will help and they will you know cause Mm -hmm. the big kind of shifts that we want individuals can do just as much and and do those things but yeah thank you so much for for chatting that was so interesting and what we'll do is I'll make sure to share all the all the reports and stuff that we talked about I was just diving into your global health one actually because I'm working on um something for a client so I was like having a little look through to 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 kind of get on it so it's been shared yeah that's (laughs) literally like the best compliment is when people like say our resources are helpful in, in some degree that always just makes me very happy so and what I really like is I I like it for anyone who will see this when they go on the website like it's really straightforward language like I know that sounds such a like like a sort of basic comment to make but I think sometimes in this space we can overcomplicate what we mean and I think what Center for Feminist Brown Policy does really well is to give a really good overview of like what you want to achieve and how you want to do it in a really straightforward way so that's a really good compliment um that's me with my comms hat on please no thank you I think I've never ever been interested in kind of perpetuating this very jargony kind of language and feminism is for everybody so it should be accessible to everybody it should be easily understood by anyone reading about it so that's always been really important that exactly exactly what you just said that our work is accessible and you don't have to have an MA degree just to read one of our briefings (laughs) exactly and that's so important yeah, feminism is for everyone well thank you so much marissa and for anyone else who's enjoyed listening to the podcast you can find the episode and any comments about it on uh, twitter at podcast features and on instagram at feminist features podcast thanks and speak to you soon Ooh.